This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Thanks, Ruth. Thanks, Ted. Good morning. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Okay, okay. I know we're tired. Some of us were up too late last night. I'm kind of impressed to see this many people here at all, frankly, at this hour in the morning. Uh, and a new year has come, but uh, I don't know if anybody else has asked the question, why, why we start a new year on January 1st? Um, I mean, I would have thought, you know, the shortest day of the year, start the new year, or the longest day of the year, one of the equinoxes, something like that. But I, I'm just kind of a little, little bit confused and, and was wondering about that and uh, humans have this, this desire, it's a creation desire, to name, to categorize, to organize. And January 1st to me just kind of seemed a little bit arbitrary. I don't know about y'all, but it just seemed a little bit arbitrary. And it's that kind of that arbitrary day that we pick to, to make resolutions that we don't keep after the first week or two. And uh, So I kind of started thinking back, you know, way back in history, and, and the Babylonians, the Egyptians, probably the Chinese and the Peruvians, and other people began to notice that the same stars came above the horizon at the same time every year, and then they began to count how many days between the time the stars came above the horizon. And eventually they came out with 365, and that's what got us our year. But then, of course, we took all the fun out of that with, you know, interstellar telemetry and whatnot. Uh, Now we know that it's 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 45.19 seconds, more or less. Apparently it changes a little bit every year. It's not a perfect oval, but it's pretty close. Well, at some point, we decided that January 1st was the new year, and I, I was kind of interested that last night, late in the evening, I, I looked at George Grant's blog. He, he's, a, he's a good guy, um, one of our PCA brothers, and is a great researcher. And here, here's what he came out with that it seems tremendously plausible. So first of all, the Romans had March as their first month, and, and they took the equinox around the 25th of March to be the first day of the year. And that makes a lot of sense because September, October, November, December sound like those Latin words for 7, 8, 9, 10, with January and February being 11 and 12, March being the first month of the year. Makes a lot of sense. 
So then what about January 1st? How come January 1st started becoming a day when we celebrate? Well, it's, it's six days into Christmastide. It's the halfway between Christmas and Epiphany. And apparently in the 1500s, 1600s, Christians began to use that day as a day to renew vows. We're moving away from Christmas now toward Epiphany, and it became a day to renew vows, to make decisions. And apparently at St. George's Tron Church in Edinburgh in the 1500s, they began gathering at the church to look at the clock tower at midnight and use that time to then make vows at midnight. And now we've got balls dropping and bells going off and people celebrating and you know, drunken revelry and everything else at, at midnight on that day. But So there seems to be a little more order to it than, than arbitrariness. But uh, I'm glad for that because I like order. And uh, it is a time when we ask ourselves questions, isn't it? January 1st. We, we begin to look ahead. And if you wanted a title for this sermon, it would be Four Questions. I want us to look at four questions um, to sort of give shape to our year. I probably won't say anything new, uh, it's, but it's important stuff. And, and if, if you're taking notes, this is a shamelessly topical sermon. It's not an exegetical sermon. It's not a good example for young pastors or, or anybody who's planning to do this. I, I knew what I wanted to say, and then I found Scripture to support what I was trying to say. <laughs> That's just a confession right up front, okay? Um, but with that being said, uh, four questions about, about being, loving, knowing, and doing to kind of orient us for the new year, 2012. Being is that whole question of who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Uh, that, that study of ontology asks what's real and, and, and who am I in, in reality? And, and that's not a question we ask very often these days, is it? When you meet somebody, you, what's your name? Okay, well, that's who you are, but that doesn't say anything about who you are. It's just a name, Mike. That doesn't describe anything. We usually ask, what do you do? And that's how we describe ourselves, isn't it? We place value upon what we do more than on who we are. But friends, I'm stating the obvious when I say that who we are is fundamentally more important than what we do. And some of us say, well, then, then I, I need to figure out who I am. Yes, that's right. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fundamentally important question. Um, of course, you start with, who, who am I? Well, I'm a human being, and so are a few billion other people on the planet. But Christian faith has always said that every single human being is made in God's image. And because of that, we have value, we have intrinsic dignity, we have worth, regardless of what we do. And so we start there. We start with who we are. And, and Christian faith has also said that, yes, we're made in God's image, but we are broken images. We are fallen images. And in the light of Christ, in the light of the, 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 the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, all human beings fall into one of two groups. And we find that in Ephesians chapter 2. And so if you look there at Ephesians 2, we, we begin to identify the first of two groups right there in the very first verse in chapter 2 when he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following the course of this world. You were, you were among those, we were among those who once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, like the rest of mankind. Look a little farther down at verse 12. He goes on to describe this first group of people. He says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's a pretty serious list of qualities for this first group of people, isn't it? Dead, alienated, by nature, that is, our being, children of wrath, separated, without hope, without God. That's the first category. Look at the second group, though, back up to chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, here it comes, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and here, here it is again, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the second group. And a further description of them follows down in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. He says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, Christ himself being the cornerstone, being built together into a dwelling for God by the Spirit. Two groups. You have to be before you know or before you do anything. Our place in life, our positions in life kind of betray some of those, those, those definitions of who we are, right? Everybody in the room is either a son or a daughter. Some of us are spouses or parents, we're friends, we're co-workers. Um, and these begin to define us. But Ephesians 2 seems to say we fall into two categories. Those who are lost and those who have been found. And those are profoundly important categories for us to consider as we begin the new year. And the question is, here's the first of the four questions, are you a child of God in this new year? Have you been found? Or are you lost? Are you separated without hope, without God in the world? Or have you been made alive, raised up, seated with Christ? This is the first and most important question. Who are you? Well, second, in my little taxonomy, most people have a, a nice triad of being, knowing, doing. I've been persuaded to throw loving in there in the second place, to kind of throw off the three, make it four, because we love before we know anything. We, we, we are love before we know we exist. And the things that we love and those that love us profoundly shape who we are. Uh, there's a book that me and a bunch of my colleagues read over the last year or two called Desiring the Kingdom, where this guy Jamie Smith makes a strong case for the fact that the things we love are almost, he says, more important than the things we know, because love comes from here, and this drives this. The heart drives the mind. And you can know all the right things, but still love in a manner that's not right, and it'll sweep you away. So let's talk about loving as the second of our four major questions. Um, Ephesians 2.4. Again, but God, 
because of the great love with which he loved us. Do you see it there? We were loved by God in our broken state even before we knew we were lost. We were loved by parents before we knew we were born and before we knew we were alive. However imperfectly and brokenly our parents have loved us. Okay? So the question for us as we enter 2012 is, what do you love? And who loves you? Because again, as I've already said, the things we love and those who love us profoundly shape who we are and the decisions we make every day of our life. And, and it goes without saying that there are, there are so many things in our world that are wooing us, enticing us, calling us to love things that are not good. Now, let's admit, there's a lot of good things that we love. Children, family, labor, vocation, music. Lots of good things we love. The scriptures give us a very careful hierarchy for our loves. And so again, kind of stating the obvious, I wanted us to consider as we enter 2012, what do you love? And in what hierarchy do you love these things? And the best place to go for that is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is the creed of the Old Testament. It's the, it's the most important verse in Judaism, which of course is, is, is Christianity sprung from Judaism, and so it's, it should be important for us as well. Every young Jewish kid memorizes this verse in Hebrew. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, who is Yahweh? Right? Hear Israel, he says. The Lord, Yahweh, is one. That's a statement of ontology, of being, isn't it? God is one. But then it moves from being to loving. The commandment that immediately follows that statement of God is the one God, then there's a commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. Love the Lord. Well, that's the, that's the first love, isn't it? And again, that kind of is sort of an obvious thing to say in a room like this. But I think we live in a world that confuses that. Our loves get out of order. And they, they can be good loves. Again, loving our children is good. Loving our spouse is good. Sometimes we, we move things out of order. And when we've moved loves out of order... The love that we express toward a spouse, toward a child, toward co-workers, toward brothers and sisters in Christ can become a disordered love if God's love is not first. Loving him first and receiving his love first, knowing your love first by him. And of course, beyond people, there's, you know, iPhones, iPads, books, jobs. There's all these things that we just love. Music, musicians. TV shows, whatever it might be, lots of things calling for love, and it makes our world so disordered. And we see the result of that everywhere, don't we? People just bumping around, doing all kinds of crazy things because their loves are out of order. There's a very clear hierarchy of love that the scriptures give us. Love God, be loved by God, and then the other things fall into place. So today, what do you love? What do you love as you enter 2012? Are you holding too tightly to something 
as you begin this year that might be taking prominence in your life over the Lord God? I mean, it seems like an obvious question, but I think it's an important, it's as good a time as any to ask that question of ourselves. Is there something that is out of order in our loves? Are we desiring something that may in and of itself be a good thing, but we're desiring it too much? We're desiring it more than the love of God himself. So being, loving, and then we get to knowing. What do we know? The word know shows up like 330-something times just in the New Testament itself. I mean, the Scriptures want us to be certain about things that we know, and we need to know them certainly. It's not guesswork. We don't want to just wish or hope. We want to know certain things. In John's first letter, in 1 John, toward the end of the New Testament, in in five little short chapters, he uses the word know 28 times. That whole book is about knowing for sure certain things. And at the end of that book, if you you have a Bible and want to turn to 1 John 5, the very second to last verse in the book, he says, and we know that the Son of God has come. It's a good thing to know. We don't just wish, we don't just hope uh, insecurely that this might be. No, he says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, knowledge, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. Statement of being again. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and he is eternal life. These are good things to know. But um, again, love comes from the, the gut and the heart and, and thinking, knowing is in the realm of the mind, but so greatly affected by what we love. And the, the very last verse, oddly enough, he ends the, right after talking about knowing that, that Christ is the Son and knowing that he is the true God. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep your loves in the proper hierarchy. Don't let things come before this Son of God, this Christ, in your loves. Know that this is true. Don't love the, wrong, the right things in the wrong order. But the verse I really want to look at in 1 John 5 is in verses 11, 12, and 13. This is what we should know. He says, this is the testimony This is the content of our knowledge. This is what's true. God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's those two categories again. Those who have life, found. Those who do not have life, lost. John goes on, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Knowing is important. There are times when our heart begins to steal us away, but we have to come back to what we know to be true, not what we feel. Now, we want our feelings, we want our affections to be rightly ordered. We live in a disordered world, and so it's hard to get that straight. So sometimes it is important to know for sure what is true. And he's saying here, know if you are a child of God that you have eternal life. 
Why does he say that? I think it's pretty obvious that so often we base our status with God based not on what we know, but on what we do. And he's saying, don't get, that, don't get the taxonomy out of order here. Doing follows knowing, loving, and being. Your status with God is not based on what you do. It's based on in whom you trust. And we saw from Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith. And even the faith, what? Is a gift from God. And so we place faith in God, and that's what saves us, not our good works. Know that you have eternal life. Our world wants to convince us, the devil wants to convince us that we are not good enough. And we can say, yeah, I agree with that. That's true. I'm not good enough. That's not a lie, Satan. That's true. Jesus is good enough. He's good enough for me. He's good in my place. I can know that I have eternal life, not based on what I do, but based on what I know, based upon in whom I trust. Again, our, our, our Christian experience too often confuses us here, doesn't it? We place uh, confidence in the things we've done. We, we, we say a certain prayer. We walk an aisle. We, we, we uh, enter baptism. There are things we do which we think then save us. But again, the New Testament never uses language of I received Christ or I, I opened my heart to the, the Savior or, or uh, you know, there's so many different phrases and, and actions that we use in our modern day. They're not in the Bible. The Bible says trust in the Lord. Believe in your heart. And where does that belief come from? The gift of God. Not by works so that we can know that we have eternal life. So as you enter 2012, here's the third question. Do you know that Yahweh is God? Do you know that he loves you? Do you know that if you're trusting in him by faith alone, that you have eternal life? Those are important questions. So we have being who we are, Loving what we love and who loves us, knowing the things that we do know. And, and again, we live in an information age. There's too much data for us to know. All of us know enough. So we need to act on that which we know. And that gets us to the doing. And of course, this is what Americans love to do. We're entrepreneurial, we're, we're bootstraps, we're, you know, I, I want to earn it. We want to do something, I want to contribute something. Right? We've got this mentality. And of course, the, the commands of Scripture are legion. They're overwhelming. The things that we're told to do are so much. Well, it was, it was kind of when I was in college, you know, friends wouldn't, they'd, they'd kind of mock Christianity because all these do's and don'ts, all these things you can't do. I say, yeah, but if you worry about the things you do, you don't even have to worry about the things you can't do because you're spending all your time doing the things you're supposed to do. But then that's our struggle, isn't it? And Paul gives voice to that struggle in Romans 7. He says, the very things I want to do, I don't do those things. But the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. This is our human dilemma. We're called to do, and yet we seem unable to do. How do we do it? Well, again, it's by the grace of God. It's by the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit 
that we begin to, as, as Paul says, walk in the Spirit, to walk in a manner in which he calls us to put off the old, to put on the new. Uh, and, and, and the commands go on and on and on. But I wanted to turn to one place because I, I find it to be a, a nice collection of the whole spectrum of those things that we're called to do. The last chapter in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 13, it's kind of a closing exhortation that, uh, that he gives, the writer of Hebrews. And um, there's commands for every spectrum of life here in Hebrews 13. Um, 17 different commands, if you count them out. We're not going to do that, but he starts with social commands. Keep loving brothers. Don't forget to entertain strangers. Show hospitality. Um, remember those in prison. These are social commands. And then he, then he moves to domestic commands. Marriage, honor it. Keep the marriage bed pure. And then he moves to, moves to economic commands. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money. And he talks about how God will provide. The Lord is my helper. And then he talks about authority. In verse 7, remember your leaders. Those who spoke the word, consider the outcome of their life. Imitate their faith. And then further down in the chapter, again he says, obey your leaders in verse 17. Submit to their authority. They keep watch over you. As men who must give account, obey them so their work will be a joy. These are ordering principles for all of life, not just social and domestic and economic, but even submission to, to authorities. And then he talks about truth in verse 9. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. It's a warning against the things that the world would sell us. And the world's trying to sell us a lot of things through strange teachings. And they've, they've become so common to us, they don't even sound strange anymore. That's the danger. The ads on TV, the songs on the radio, they're selling us strange teachings. And he says, don't be carried away by these strange teachings. It's a negative command, but a, a, a profoundly important one. Uh, he gets to philanthropy in verse 16. Do not forget to do good, to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This list, again, can become overwhelming. But what we do, based on what we know and what we love and who we are, if we know we're loved, if we know we're adopted, if we know we're kept secure by God, then all of a sudden the doing is no longer this onerous obligation out of fear, but it's a joyful gratitude because we know we're loved and we know who we are in Christ. Now, this, this gets to an awful lot of, of American Christian experience, doesn't it? Many American Christians live their Christian life out of fear and out of obligation that I've got to be good so that God will love me. I've got to be good to avoid his wrath. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's absolve ourselves as we enter 2012 from this onerous task of trying to be good enough. By being good, will God love you more than he already does? By being bad, will he love you less? Obviously, no. That's the gospel. He loves us 
with an inestimable love right now as his children. And you parents, you know how this works out, right? You may not be pleased with what the child does, but it doesn't change your love for the child. Well, maybe in our imperfect state, maybe it does some days. But in, in our better days, our love does not change based on behavior, though, though children think it does, because that's an American thing. And that bleeds over into our Christian faith. I've got to be good so God will love me. I mean, you've all had that experience, right? You're being very spiritual. You, you've said your prayers in the morning. You've, you've read scripture. You, you haven't yelled at your kids. And, and you, you're listening to the Christian radio station. And then you get a flat tire on the way to work anyway. You're going, God, I don't deserve that. Why? I've, always been, I've been good. It doesn't work that way. God's love for us is unchanging, inestimable, profoundly more than we can ever ask or imagine. And when we know that, then our doing becomes a joyful response of gratitude toward God, not an onerous obligation out of fear of retribution. So friends, it's a hopeless task to try to please God through our actions. Let's absolve ourselves of that. Let's love God because he has first loved us. Let's love God because our position, our being, is as adopted children, raised up, seated, held secure in Christ, knowing that we have eternal life. A friend of mine recently wrote this about uh, the end of the year. He said, the end of the year is met with regret over resolutions never kept, and the hope and anticipation of resolutions yet to be made, but like it or not, this time of year is met in our minds tilting in the direction of those things we might try again to change. Most of the time, resolutions commit us to doing more, more exercise, more financial frugality, more time in Scripture. I need to find a way to resolve to do less, and then he says, less of the things that distract me and make life hectic so that I can do more of that which really matters. That's good stuff. I need to dissect my life in such a way that those distinctions become clear, and that's the challenge, and that is the challenge. Because there are so many things to do, we can be distracted by the small things and miss the big important things. J.B. Phillips, uh, in his book, Your God is Too Small, he said this, if there's one thing which should be quite plain to those who accept the revelation of God in nature and in the Bible, is that he is never in a hurry Long preparation, careful planning, slow growth would seem to be the leading characteristics of spiritual life. Well, that's so uh, against our nature, isn't it? Long preparation, careful planning, slow growth. Yet there are many people whose religious tempo is feverish. They flourish like a banner. The text that says, The king's business requireth haste. And they proceed to drive themselves nearly mad with tension and anxiety. Philip says, it's refreshing and salutary to study the poise and quietness of Christ. His task and responsibility might well have driven a man out of his mind, but he was never in a hurry. He was never impressed by numbers. He never was a slave of the clock. 
He was acting as he said, as he observed God to act, never in a hurry. That's a good word as we enter the new year as well, isn't it? So being, who are you? Be a child of God this year. Loving, love the Lord. Receive his love. Knowing, know that you are loved and know if you're trusting in him that you have eternal life. And doing, well, all you do this year, do by the grace of God and to the glory of God. St. Augustine uh, said it this way. He kind of summed it up very easily. He said, love God and do as you please. You got to let that settle just for a second because that, that's dangerous in America. Is it? Do as you please. What? No. Love God. Get that loving right. And then what you do as you please will be pleasing to God if the hierarchies of love are in their proper order. So love God and do as you please. Amen. May God give us grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are good. This is true. And as we end one year and begin another year, we affirm that you are good when you give. You are good when you take away. Whether the sun shines over us or darkness creeps in upon us, you are good. And your goodness has been with us during the past year, whether in leading us through twisted wilderness, whether guiding us tenderly through times of gentle providence, you have been good to us. And so we give you thanks. But God, just as we sung this morning, we are prone to wander. And so God, we pray that you would hold us as we hoist sail, as we draw up anchor, as we set out on a new year, we, we pray that Christ would be our pilot in the future as he has been in our past. And God, we thank you that in some sense you have veiled our eyes to the waters ahead this year. We can only see so far ahead. And if you've appointed storms of tribulation, God, we pray that you'd be with us in them. If we must pass through persecution or temptation or loss, God, help us to know that in Christ we will not drown. So, Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us this year, whether in comfort or in trial, whether in pleasure or in pain. Use us as your chosen vessels for your use, we pray. And we ask all these things in the matchless name of Christ, our Lord, our Redeemer, the sustainer of every breath that we breathe. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.